Hello and welcome to Accommodate Unplugged and what will be our last podcast in 2023. It's Tuesday the 19th of December and on today's edition we have Terry Sheehan on the US East Coast, Max Sato in British Columbia, Brian Jackson in Sydney and I'm Jeremy Hawkins in London. While one way or another this year has produced the usual, perhaps inevitable string of surprises for financial markets, not least a global economy that refused to slide into recession expected by many, or in particular inflation, which both rose and fell faster than the forecasters predicted. These two factors alone have done much to ensure that 2023 has been an especially volatile period for asset prices in general. So in today's podcast, we thought we'd have a look at which of these forecast errors have had the most important impact on international investors. So let's get on with it then. Stateside, Terry, well, I guess the one question I would ask you about this, whatever happened to a recession? Beats me. Uh, Good answer. Start with me mean to go on. Well, you know, it's it really has been interesting that all the concerns about uh the rising interest rates ruining economic expansion just don't seem to have come to fruition. Um, so, you know, for the U.S. at least, the the underlying trend for the economy seems to be this right around 2% growth, which is a, a nice, moderate pace. So is that well, let's, let's just rewind what I was going to say. But um, is it fair to say now that after last week's FOMC meeting that you know, the Fed, the long-awaited Fed pivot has finally taken place now? Yeah, I, I think that we have seen the peak in short-term rates. And I think it's also fair to say that there's been a fairly significant shift in terms of the way the actual FOMC itself sees interest rates moving in 2024, certainly compared to where we were just a few months ago anyway. So I think, you know, and we're talking about overall surprises. Um, do you think the Fed's really been caught out quite quite a lot as well this year as well by developments? Well, I think the thing that really caught the Fed out this year was um, the problems back in March with the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and uh, the associated fallout from that. Um, there really has been a lot more talk this year from Fed officials about things like maintaining financial stability, uh, which seems to be the story behind the, these, uh, the, the increase in interest rates over the last 18 months or so. Uh, but, you know, higher rates have not ruin the economy. And in fact, I have to wonder if they haven't in some ways helped a little bit in terms of making um, financial decisions that are based less on low cost of borrowing than on the need for borrowing. Hmm, interesting. I was going to ask you about Silicon the Silicon Valley Bank. What well, was back in March, wasn't it, when, when that went belly up, so to speak? Do you think the Fed was caught unawares by that? Or do you think clearly it had a major impact on financial markets? I'm just looking at the bond market, equity market or whatever. Do you think the Fed was you know, alert to what was going on there? Or do you think they were somewhat surprised as well? Well, if you look at their reports of it, they were aware that there were problems, but they did not respond as quickly as they should have. And yes, they were caught unawares, um, partly because just the the infrastructure of the financial system now means that these kind of problems are going to emerge much more quickly than they used to. OK. Anything else in terms of big surprises from the U.S. side during 23? I think that 
it, Fed officials themselves have been very surprised by the fact that their anticipation of slower growth just hasn't come to pass the way they expected. Um, I think they're actually a little bit surprised by how much inflation has improved overall. Um, but I think they are still very, very cautious about bumps in the road ahead, as they've said. Mm. I'm interested, I think, certainly, so without preempting 2024, um, to see what kind of models a lot of these central bank is going to use, since um, a lot of ones they've been using over the last few years don't appear to be working too well at the moment. Great. Thanks for that, Terry. Um, Canada, Max, I guess one of the features of the Canadian data during the course of this year um, has been the what the high proportion of positive readings on the Canadian um, retail performance, sorry, relative performance index, I should say, the index accommodate puts together, looks at how forecasters have performed versus the actual data. So, I mean, I guess it's, it's fair to say that the Canadian economy has surprised fairly consistently on the upside this year. I think that's a, a fair assessment right now. But we've also we also always have something um, downside um, mm-hmm. um, risks from the nature you know the drought or flooding or a storm so um uh, and then uh, for the past year i think we've seen many labor strikes um both in the states and canada uh, i think labor unions uh, see as the one of the best chances to ask for better working conditions and higher uh, wages so um considering um there are a lot of uh, headwinds um you know the concerns about um, geopolitical risks, I think uh, we've been doing fairly well. Yeah, certainly looking at the numbers, that certainly appears to be the case. Um, Bank of Canada, do you think on the whole they sort of, have they called the Canadian economy correctly this year, um, perhaps compared to other central banks? Or do you think you know, they were called out by inflation or perhaps they uh, perceived a slightly weaker economy than turned out to be the case? Um, they there were some ups and downs, and they can see um, some surprising uh, numbers. But uh, overall, uh, they're not far off from um, uh, forecasting um, GDP and CPI. But this, uh, as the governor has warned us many times, that the, the path from 3% CPI to, all the way down to 2 target can be really bumpy. Um, you know, it, it can. Uh, he said recently again that uh, there's always a risk that the um, the path down to two percent uh, could take. You know, it could take longer than everybody thinks, or there's going to be another um, you know crisis in uh, supply chains or, or energy commodity prices globally. So uh, they can't really uh, say they can't really declare a victory over inflation yet. Okay, I'm sure that's certainly true. Um, okay, you say that on the whole, the Bank of Canada perhaps hasn't judged the economy too badly. Have there been any other kind of surprises which have moved Canadian financial markets this year? Uh, today's data was a little bit disappointing, but not huge. You know, the CPI exactly the same as uh, uh, previous month, November 3.1 total, and uh, um, the other uh, underlying data is also. Um, didn't change. So that means, um, uh, you know, I think the BOG, uh, sorry, BOC is right about um, saying the the fight over inflation is not over yet and they don't want uh, markets and people to price in 
too much about uh, uh, you know the timing and the pace of the rate cuts uh, uh, next year. Okay, fair enough. One last thing from me, which well, came as a bit of a surprise to me, but perhaps not to you. I noticed last week uh, the central bank made some changes to the way it'll be announcing uh, policy moves and the like uh, as we go into next year. Um, any surprises there? And indeed, does it have any significance? Uh, are you talking about the frequency of uh, news conferences? Yep. And- Okay. That's the one. I wasn't surprised at all because the, the bank has been over time trying to make the process of uh, policy making more transparent and try to talk to uh, the public and markets more often. So I think it's a good policy um, to hold um, governor and senior deputy governors joint presser after the um, after each scheduled meeting, which is only eight times a year. So I think that that's a good move. Okay. Thank you for that. And before we let you go, let's go across to Japan. Um, what have we got? Well, the BOJ, last of the major central banks to make their end of year, if you like, policy announcement yesterday. Um, any surprises there? Because we've been through, I mean, you could clearly called it right this year saying don't really expect anything. But was there ending the end of a year with these markets still looking for a shift away from the ultra-loose policy? I wasn't surprised at all. The, the statement was kind of a mirror image of the previous one. And uh, going into the meeting, I I would say, you know, don't take, uh, I think the markets was wrong about reading too much into the governor's comment and in his parliamentary testimony. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, uh, he was asked about um, his um, um, policy plans or attitude or, or his hopes uh, going into his second term um, next year. And uh, he said, uh, he, you know, typically in the Japanese language, they don't say what the subject is, but he said challenging. But what he meant was not to, they're not going to have to, uh, they don't have to make a difficult decision of lifting rates or not. What he meant was when he took his job um, during the confirmation hearings last February, he said uh, this is a challenging job. So he just repeated the same um, phrase. Right. He didn't mean anything about policy changes. So, and then uh, I, I understand some market uh, participants are looking at a rate hike in January, but he did uh, told report, uh, tell reporters yesterday that uh, um, th- there's not much data they can get before their next meeting, which is January 22nd, 23rd. And my call is still um, April 25th, 26th for ending the negative rate, but that can be the earliest possible timing because that's when um, they're going to get uh, more information about what the wage hike uh, rate's going to be in the next uh, fiscal year starting on April 1st. Right, as you said before. Okay, so um, no big surprises at the Bank of Japan. Um, anything else that's caught your eyes in terms of kind of any economic shocks? Um, not much of an economic uh, shock, but uh, as you can see, uh, Kishida uh, government's um, approval ratings have been declining steadily and plunged mm-hmm. this time because of the, the series of revelations that the main uh, f- political factions uh, in the ruling party have been underreporting uh, profits from uh, holding uh, fundraisers. And that, you know, um, reflects the old type uh, policy making and, uh, you know, all done by uh, to, to make uh, the biggest factions happy. So I think uh, public uh, is uh, fed up with it now. And 
as DOJ people have always said, they don't get um, influenced by any particular events, political or economic. But I think uh, um, at this point in time, especially before they can draft a budget for the next fiscal year on the government side, there's no um, point in the BOJ to hurry uh, a rate hike while, uh, I mean, before Fed can cut uh, cut rates. I, I don't think they, they really calculate those timings. Right. Okay, brilliant. Many thanks for that then, Max. Right, let's go across to Brian. Well, China, I suppose, I don't know, is it just simply fair to say that for China, China and the economy, it's been a year of mainly downside surprises? Hello, do we have Brian? Sorry about that. Yes, just uh, getting off mood. Um, but yeah, I, I think definitely um, the you know the, the main factor that's been weighing on the Chinese economy has been uh, you know the property sector downturn, which has continued pretty much all through the year. Getting out the southern, you were hoping that you know moving past the COVID zero restrictions, uh, you would get a, a strong rebound in the Chinese economy. But you know it's been just uh, I think uh, really impacted by what's been going on in the property market. Um, you know, we we obviously track house prices every month, mm-hmm. and, and it's been in negative territory for pretty much most of the year. And also, just it's very striking the property investment um, uh, data uh, that that we report each month. If you, if you sort of strip out um, the property sector, investment's actually been pretty strong um, throughout the year. But uh, obviously, when uh, property uh, investment is is falling eight or nine percent year on year uh, every month, that's just dragging down the total and uh, just you know being a real you know a real concern I think for policymakers is about how they. Um, try uh, and cope with that. We've definitely had a few tweaks here and there um, in in terms of trying to improve liquidity and, and trying to ease um, some of the restrictions on um, on borrowing that uh, uh, home buyers can do, but it really hasn't uh, had a, a huge impact uh, to date. Okay, in terms of the policy side of things, as you mentioned, it's a, you know, perhaps a disappointing period for uh, the, the recovery in China. Have there been any policy actions taken by the, the authorities which have caught markets by surprise? Because it seems as if they've thrown an awful lot of money at the economy in, in various shapes and forms. So have people been surprised by just how far they've gone down that road or did they think, well, we're going to have to do that anyway? No, I think that was it was broadly in line um, with with what people had been expecting, and and also broadly in line with um, you know some statements that you know the limited statements that we do have on on the policy outlook from mm-hmm. uh, from authorities. So, and I, I don't think um, it, it's been a major shift in policy to to deal with uh, the property market. It, you know, they've been burnt in the past of of trying to do too much to support the property market and, and sort of that creating imbalances uh, elsewhere in the economy. So they're probably a little bit uh, reluctant to um, adjust policy too much to try and support the property market. But, you know, so it's a fine balance that they're, they're trying to uh, to walk at the moment. Uh, you know, we, we do have um, uh, some meetings going on around the end of the year and early in, in the new year that will perhaps... Uh, Result in some sort of shift in, in uh, the policy, uh, you know, the policy direction that they want to take, but it's a little bit too early to to, um, to call that right now. And and you know, I think, you know, at, at the moment it's just been tweaking things here and there to try and um, provide a bit of support to the property market. Yeah, watch this space, as they say. Okay. Um, Move your immediate part of the world in Australia. Indeed, let's put New Zealand in with that as well. What have been sort of the main main shocks for financial markets to digest there? 
Well, probably uh, something that does fly under the radar a little bit, but has definitely been highlighted by um, particularly the Reserve Bank of Australia and, and, you know, to some extent officials in New Zealand has just been just the the, the pretty weak productivity growth that we've seen uh, extend for quite some time now in Australia uh, in particular. That's been something that has really... Uh, been highlighted by the RBA as one of the factors that explains why they have had to try and crush inflation with uh, uh, with policy rate increases, whereas right. obviously the, they'd much rather uh, have a situation where we had strong productivity growth and you know we could mm-hmm. actually then allow the economy to grow quickly and and have um, you know real wages growth uh, without um, you know concerns about the inflationary impact of that, and that that's that's been really a, a, a a common theme through much of the RBA discussion this year. Um, you know, they've definitely put out a few uh, interesting papers just examining the causes and, and potential solutions to this, this slowdown in productivity growth. And I think that's just really a, a major challenge for, um, you know, for governments, for businesses and, and for, you know, basically consumers in Australia as well. It's It was already slowing down before the pandemic, um, the pandemic obviously uh, had had a huge impact on it, and as we move past the pandemic, we just haven't really seen um, a, 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 you know, a very noticeable improvement in in that weak productivity trend in Australia. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I think to be honest, it's pretty well reflected in Europe as well. It does seem to be there's some you know, longer lasting COVID effects, perhaps than people originally thought would be the case. And productivity productivity numbers, if I can say, particularly in in the UK, have been fairly disastrous and a major worry for the central bank. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, anything else in well, indeed, either be on Australia or New Zealand, and different from what you've just said, or indeed the rest of the region that you know kind of been the uh, main things that financial markets have been taken by surprise. Uh, I mean, I would just mention uh, how well things have generally gone in India. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's been quite a, a you know a strong contrast uh, with the, the the weaker growth in uh, China has, has just been the fact that India has had a, a reasonably good year, um, and and again it did last year as well. I think if you go back over the last two years, it's it's outperformed China's economy pretty well. Um, you know, maybe. China's been growing sort of around the 4% level and, and India's more around 2%. And there there's, does seem to be sort of growing confidence about, um, you know, India's sort of medium-term growth prospects as well. Uh, you know, we've had the IMF and um, some of the rating agencies and, you know, some of the, you know, the, the big thinkers about uh, the, the longer-term um, outlook for the Indian economy, making sort of arguments that India's in terms of its demographics and its level of industrialization is is kind of at a level where you know India was maybe 20, uh, China was maybe 20 years ago and uh, where you know it went it went on its big uh, uh, you know strong uh, period of, of growth and so there's a lot of optimism around the Indian economy at the moment and so you know that will be a challenge for uh, the RBI to to make sure that that doesn't um, you know uh, impact their short-term uh, macro goals but. Yeah, you know, it is a positive uh, signal that you know they're, they're getting some of it right in in, in the Indian economy. Um, you know, the the government is is doing quite a bit in terms of trying to um, get some of the key infrastructure in place that they will need to be able to sustain this growth. But uh, I I think in the in the in the near term we have actually had a a you know, pretty good um, year from the RBI in terms of managing the the growth and inflation. Uh, uh, balance that they they need to do. You know, the, their inflation numbers do get bounced around a little bit by uh, food prices, but in, in general, they've they've had a, a pretty solid uh, outcome from for both a growth and an inflation perspective. 
Okay, interesting stuff. Clearly one to watch in 2024. Thanks for that, Brian. Right, let's wrap this up then with Europe. Um, what can we say here? Well, I guess after, in many ways, a surprisingly decent start, the Eurozone economy has had uh, a pretty dismal performance over at least certainly the second half of this year anyway. Um, Econoday's relative performance index has spent most of the year sub-zero, especially since the first quarter, meaning that on average private sector forecasts of economic activity have been far too strong. Now, like I guess most central banks, the ECB has been wider the mark in its um, forecast, not so much on GDP, but particularly on inflation. In fact, just looking quickly at the, the GDP growth numbers the ECB came out with a year ago, so at the back end of 2022, they expected uh, 2023 Eurozone GDP growth of 0.5% as of last week's meeting and updated forecasting. Forecasting now expecting this year to, or estimating this year, I should say, at 0.6%. So to be fair, they haven't done too badly there, or that should be noted that the quarterly profile is going to be well off what the bank was expecting. Uh, back into last year, they were maintaining that the Eurozone would avoid recession this year. To be fair, we haven't actually seen it yet, but to all intents and purposes, it looks as if it's pretty well there. If we do see a negative handle on fourth quarter Eurozone GDP, then that will be technical recession, recession having arrived. And even if the fourth quarter isn't negative, there's every chance that the first quarter will be. Um, in terms of inflation numbers, though, I mean, again, if we just go back to last year, inflation for 2023 was expected to be 6.3% and the core rate at 4.2%. As of last week, the headline now has been reduced to 5.4%, so nearly a full percentage point lower than expected 12 months ago. And the core at 5.0%, which is nearly a full percentage point higher. And I guess that really underlines both, you know, well, the problems central banks have had uh, forecasting inflation and indeed disentangling you know, the headline inflation versus what's going on in terms of the core, the, the non-volatile components. A big surprise, I think, you know, for the ECB and indeed certainly other central banks in Europe and perhaps elsewhere, has been this apparent disconnect between inflation and the labour market. The jobless rate in the eurozone has held down surprisingly low. I mean, the latest figures put it at 6.5 percent. And that's just a tick above its all time record low. And in fact, it's been hovering, I guess, around that level pretty well all year. And yet we've seen the core inflation rate that's fallen more than two percentage points since it peaked in March time. So it's kind of left policymakers you know, having to jettison some of their economic models. And I guess a lot of them scratching their heads as to you know, how they're supposed to go about forecasting the key economic variable is supposed to be targeting. Um, that's especially true of the UK, um, where indeed they've had some, I guess one of the surprises, say from my side to say, has been the quality or the problems of the ONS, the Office of National Statistics over here, has had putting out its economic data. The ONS has always had a good reputation for producing reliable statistics, but over the last few months, it's had to release so-called experimental numbers um, on the labour market due to a lack of confidence in the official data surveys. And that's hardly helped the Bank of England. Uh, but I mean, frankly, the bank itself has already admitted on their growth and inflation forecasts have been taken with a pinch of salt in markets ever since uh, November 2022, when it came out and said that the UK would by now be in the deep and longest recession on record, which clearly has turned out to be about as wide as a mark as any central bank has forecast. Um, it may be still that we'll get a, a downturn in the UK. 
recession this year still seems pretty unlikely at the moment. But if we get a negative fourth quarter, then we could well get a first quarter downturn as well. But even so, the kind of recession that the bank was forecasting just over a year ago, we're not going to get anywhere near that unless there's some major shocks in the system we don't really know about. Other surprises, I think, for Europe, in some ways, perhaps you have a difference between what's been happening with some of the the major industrialized countries and, and the slightly weaker ones. So the weakness in Germany in particular, I think you know, people generally were anticipating 2023 to be a poor year for Germany, not least because they were more susceptible than a number of Eurozone countries to developments in Ukraine. And clearly, perhaps you can say the fact that the war is going on may have taken some people by surprise, perhaps not for others. But in any event, it certainly hit Germany hard. And uh, the manufacturing sector there really has been hammered by, well, both that, but weak global demand in general. And it's still really not showing any signs of recovery. But compare that with Greece. Well, for people with good memories, they may remember if we go back um, to what the 2007-2008 debt crisis in Greece. That was a time when there was much speculation that the euro currency could actually be pulled apart should Greece be forced to um, leave, leave the actual leave the currency. In practice, though, since then, the various policies they put in place have seen Greece become one of the shining stars of Europe, much to, I think, to many people's surprise. 2023 GDP growth for Greece in the EU Commission's forecast was expected to be 1.0%. They're now, as of the latest forecast, suggesting it's going to be up at 2.4%. In fact, the economy is performing so well that the government's now expecting a primary surplus on its borrowing in 2024. Uh, and that would be the first time we've seen that for some considerable while. And indeed, after 13 years, um, as of October, Greece regained investment grade status in its from its credits rating from the likes of uh, Standard and Poor. All of which means that the Athens stock market, when I looked this morning, was up just over 41% on the year. So it really has been a remarkable period for Greece. And yeah, given where, if we go back a year ago, given all the problems in Europe and everything else, um, it's, I don't think many people really would have anticipated one of the you know, typical underperformers within the European Currency Union you know, to perform quite as well as it has. Um, Switzerland, I should also mention, um, looking again at Econoday's relative performance index, it's been almost unique in the sense that uh, the RPI for Switzerland has spent almost the entire year um, in negative territory. And otherwise, it means that uh, the, the economists or forecasters have been consistently too strong in their projections of uh, Swiss economic growth. Um, now, in practice, that's meant there's been less upside pressure on inflation in Switzerland and elsewhere. And it's also led to um, relatively less uh, tightening by the Swiss National Bank. Um, all that said, one of the other surprises, which perhaps shouldn't come as a surprise given its track record. But while most central banks seem to be quite happy to kind of guide investors ahead of their interest rate announcements, Swiss National Bank again showed it's still more than prepared to stir the proverbial pot by doing the unexpected. I mean, in this case, it was back in September at their monetary policy assessment when with speculators looking for another hike after some hawkish comments from a central bank, uh, the SMB duly went out and left rates on hold. And I guess if nothing else, the simple takeaway from that is never take the SMP, SMB, I should say rather, for granted. 
Okay then. Well, I guess that's a quick run round and wrap up of uh, some of the kind of surprises which have been you know, caught investors and indeed central banks uh, on the surprise side for 2023. And I guess you know, I suppose a look back through the year always raises a question: Who'd want to be a forecaster in the first place? But of course, without forecasts, we wouldn't have a consensus. And without that, the economic data can't drive the financial markets. So to keep up to date with what's expected and what actually happened for all the key data, just follow Conaday's global economic calendar. And with that, thanks to all for tuning in. And on behalf of Terry, Max Braun, me, and indeed the entire Econoday team, to those who celebrate it, have a very enjoyable Christmas. So that's it for us for now, but we'll be back early in January with some thoughts on what might be driving markets then. Bye for now.